Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where you get the tips, strategies, and lessons learned of the top industry leaders in the data analytics and data science space. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for being here. I hope that you are having a wonderful week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for your feedback. Thank you so much for sharing the podcast with your friends. I hope that you're finding it useful and useful enough to be sharing it as... And yeah, please, please tell your friends how much you love this podcast. Today's episode, we are speaking with Emra Gultekin. He is the CEO and co-founder of Chooch. He is the CEO and co-founder of Chooch AI. Chooch AI focuses on visual AI, especially in the cases where it is fast or they get it to a point that's faster than the human eye. Emra has been in the space for a long time. And in the past decade or so, he has been managing director, he has been CEO, board member, and now co-founder and CEO of this company, Chooch, for about four years now. We have a fantastic conversation about his background, how he got, he got to where he is, and how the process was about starting and scaling an AI company. So if you are in that process or thinking about starting your own AI company, then this is a great episode for you. I really enjoy the conversation. I hope you do as well. Here is the episode with Emra. Let me know what you think. Hi, this is Felipe. Today, I'm speaking with Emra. Emra, thank you so much for being in the show. How are you going today? Good, good. Thanks for having me, Felipe. I really enjoy uh, talking to people like you and, and to discuss uh, the future of uh, AI data and all things that uh, we encounter as humans. So yeah, absolutely great. Uh, mate, my absolute pleasure. To kick off the discussion, tell me, how did you get started in the world of data and in the world of AI? What was it that brought you into the space? I think we grew up in a Generation X, so slightly older than the millennials, but uh, we grew up in uh, reading a lot of science fiction. We grew up in a period where the first Apple computers came to the homes. So I remember we were, I was uh, 12 years old, just you know, hacking away with an Apple IIe and, and sending uh, messages to my friends who were like three blocks down the road. And this was in the early 80s. But we had solved you know, lots of issues, you know, programming in basic, doing kinds of games and stuff like that. So we grew up in this generation and um, it kind of evolved after that with uh, the onset of the internet first, emailing and the internet in the early 90s. And then uh, you had this entire dot-com boom, kind of bust, and then mobile and so forth. So we, we kind of grew up in that environment. And it was very fast-paced. My background is more in real estate and developing businesses, uh, logistics, did a lot of social investments, uh, and uh, got deep into AI several years ago uh, with Chooch as we co-founded it. And uh, what we wanted to do was just bring in the future. I mean, we had enough of things that people talking about, and we said, let's try and uh, reel the future in ourselves and see what we can do with this technology and the data that's coming and coming about. So that's really the background. We're really lucky and fortunate to be involved in this place, uh, really fortunate and to be part of this journey. That's amazing. So before you founded Church, you were doing some investing, is that right? Yes. Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm an entrepreneur from uh, right out of college, started my own businesses, did a lot of consulting work, did real estate development, uh, social investments in uh, schools, nursing homes, 
did lots of logistics in Central Asia, Europe, um, and originally Turkish. So I did a lot of work there during the boom period uh, in the early 2000s uh, up to 2010. So yeah, did a lot of investing and a lot of um, different types of uh, things which required, you know, supply chain, logistics, data, all kinds of data that you're working with in any type of field. And some of the challenges there were particularly human-driven challenges, data-driven challenges, and uh, just saw that, you know, there are lots of applications for this in, uh, in different fields. And so decided to focus on it 100%. That's exactly what I wanted to spend a little bit of time on is how did you come to the decision of, of creating Church? As in, was it something that you started to see through the investments? And how was it from first seeing the power of AI to saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to launch a company, co-founded, be the CEO, almost four years now. How was the, the process of getting to the decision to start the company? Yeah, so I had started companies before. This is my seventh company. It's the first proper tech company, I would say, low deep tech so uh, my co-founder, he's been working on uh, image recognition, and he's he's the engineer uh, mm-hmm. behind it, and he's he's been working on it for several several for eight years prior to us launching Chooch. The thing was that he would come to me every five years and ask, "I've got this idea, you know, we're working on this, and is it serious?" And I didn't know whether it was serious or not. But every time my co-founder talked about something, it would come to fruition in five years' time. So wow. whether it was like a big Dropbox type of thing or like Spotify, or these were things that we were talking about in the 90s uh, or early mm-hmm. 2000s even, yes, that far back. But you know, it's timing. All these things are timing. So the next time we come together, I'll take it more seriously and maybe we can <laughs> So that was kind of the thing. It was like, okay, we're working on this AI thing, image recognition and video uh, analysis tool and uh, basically search capabilities uh, in high detail was very interesting. And I just okay let's let's do it together we jump ship so to speak because it's a leap of faith these types of things and you got to be wary of that when starting a company the rate of failure is very very high and so you have to be ready to fail and we just okay we'll we'll try it out if it doesn't work that's fine but um, we kind of maneuvered our way through it and developed a product which is stable uh scalable robust and usable by enterprises today so that's amazing I have a couple of questions uh, before I want to ask you more about the product. So one of the questions is around the relationship with your co-founder. How did you originally meet and how does your working relationship work today? Yeah, great question. So I've founded companies before and like you always have this chemistry and the DNA of those two people or those three people coming together and working is really the, it creates the culture. So uh, Hakan is my brother. So that helped. Yes. <laughs> in a way. So we never worked together, though. He's very different. And like we worked in different areas uh, all our lives. So uh, when mm. this came together, you have to be careful working with Kim, I think. Um, yes just being able to be professional at the same time. And, and so uh, there were some you know, thoughts in that process that took place that nothing is perfect. And we thought we could work through those kinds of issues together. And we've been pretty successful so far. Yeah, that's how we found each other. But uh, at the same time, we have a very professional relationship and he's very coder focused. He's a hacker engineer. I do the business administration and money. So our worlds don't really collide at all. Yeah. Except when we're talking about the product itself, where, you know, I pr- provide some product input and, and the engineering team does it. But that's how we 
started. And uh, yeah, that's a very valid question because the co-founders of the company usually uh, make or break it in the initial stages, at least, um, as, uh, until the company starts scaling very, very quickly. And then other things come into play. But yeah, that's a great question. No, definitely. And you guys would have to have some processes or some methods to work through disagreements and different points of view. And that's where, you know, sometimes it being family, it makes it a little bit harder than otherwise would. Do you have any conscious processes that you guys might use to tackle disagreements so you can move forward? Or is it something that has been built more organically through your life together? Yeah, so uh, we try and take a professional stance on this whenever possible. And uh, our motto is don't create tension, just keep the tension low. You can have yeah. disagreements on a lot of stuff, but you work out the disagreements and you compromise. And that's how we move forward. And we've seen um, other team members joining. So senior team members joining the team has really alleviated some of those pressures as well, because mm -hmm. uh, now you have more people to bounce ideas off of and, and come to compromises. So uh, growing the team very quickly at an early stage outside of the founders, I think is a very important process. And that process needs to be uh, tackled and actually implemented at a very, very early stage. That gives the organization some more flexibility and more uh, backups to tackle some of uh, the problems that you'll face because you're going to be facing problems every day, basically, or challenges. Yes, definitely. That's really interesting. The other question that I had before I jump into the product side is. Having had a career before doing this business and having had uh, multiple businesses and being an investor, I wanted to ask you, did you de-risk your life from this startup perspective? As in, what I'm thinking is a lot of people think that startups and especially tech startups is a young person's game, which the data completely contradicts, by the way. But the image in people's minds is that, you know, you have to be 20 something fresh out of uni or at uni and you build technology startups. And in that case, obviously people haven't had a career to build any financial security or a nest egg or anything like that. And they, they go into that, they pour all their money and that's sort of the ideal or the, what's most known for an entrepreneur's journey. In your case, having had so many businesses before and having had a career, did you consciously or unconsciously de-risk your life before jumping into this business? Yeah, good, great question. It's uh, All this is part of... Um initiating a business and also developing it. And tech businesses, fundamentally, it's a business. So it's no different than starting another type of business. Uh, although people think it's different, it's actually the same thing. So you can start, you know, you know there's no age limit to it. Actually, later founders are are usually more successful. And it's because, because of the ex life experience and experience in the in domains, in the specific domains, uh, that's part of it. And plus, as you said, de-risking. So we were fortunate enough to develop a lot of um, businesses uh, before this. And so that generated some wealth and uh, de-risking is part of it. So you have a family, you've got kids to take care of and all that kind of stuff. So uh, yes, you do de-risk uh, as you grow older, you know how to do that. And you're more calm about uh, some of the uncertainties that <laughs> these things bring. So uh, yeah, there's an element of uh, de-risking. So if this doesn't work out, you don't lose your life. 
But even if you're very young and you don't have the money or the wealth or anything, even if you fail, and it, you get up and you move. Uh, and, you know, it's not as long as you still have your mind, you have your capability, your health is fine, you have the capabilities and you have your network, which should have grown through the process yeah. of developing the startup, actually better off than you were before. Even if your startup fails, I think a lot of young people don't realize that when they start this and they get very nervous. But uh, in that sense, you know, you'll always be better off after a failed startup than you were before an unfailed startup or no startup at all. It's a good, great, great question. But yes, in my case, it was the risk substantially. But again, you know, you spend four or five years on something, you could be doing something else, making a lot more money instead of trying something that, uh, like a moonshot, like a tech startup. But I don't know who said it, but it was like, you don't regret the things that you do. You you kind of regret the things that you don't do in life. So yes. uh, you may as well, you know, if you've got this chance, you may as well try it. 100%. That is fantastic. And can you tell me more about the product that you guys have developed, the platform and some of the applications so far? Yeah. So um, it's uh, basically what we do is visual AI. And that what we mean by that is we clone expert human vision into a machine. So let's say you're a pathologist and you're counting cells the entire day through a microscopy and you're identifying cells through imagery or cancer cells. What we do is we take your capability to do that and put it into a machine. So the machine does it. And it basically what it does is tag things. So, so tag like cells or the uh, cancer cells, the type of cells. And then you do this for fashion or you do it for aircraft parts and you do it for any type of media sports. So it's very horizontal in that sense. And um, it's not that obvious, but uh, as we got more deep into it, it became more and more obvious that this was the future of everything visual. So you'll be wearing glasses in the next five to 10 years together with your phone. And those glasses will be telling you exactly what's in front of you in very, very high detail. So this is kind of the precursor for that type of technology going forward. It's an enterprise play. So we work with uh, enterprises. It's a SaaS product. It's a platform. You plug and play it and uh, we, you custom train the AI for your specific needs as an enterprise. So you may be in manufacturing and you need to discover faults in manufacturing or quality assurance. So those things are usually done by humans today. So you would just put an AI to look at it and to uh, make sure that those things are quality controlled, quality checked. And uh, similarly, um, in media, like th thousands and thousands of images are being taken every day at events. And the photographers don't have time to really to tag each one of them in high detail. So they run it through our API. The AI understands everything and puts it into the IPTC fields of the uh, of, of the uh, images and then serves it to the industry. And that happens in real time. So there's no lag there. It's quite a uh, powerful tool that we've developed uh, and uh, we're constantly training it. We have like 165,000 classes today of trained um, data, of trained tags. Uh, so it's unheard of in the uh, individual uh, imagery. Yeah. Models, neural nets fail at about 15,000, 20,000 classes. They can't take more than that. We were able to build a dynamic hierarchy of models of neural nets uh, so that it could basically scale to infinity and not have stress on the, on the network itself. It's cloud-based and it's also we also use it on the edge as well. So we're able to deploy a limited amount of models on the edge. As well, that's fantastic. And what type of hardware are you deploying to in that case? 
So, and the cloud is agnostic. So uh, it's just an API. You can plug it into any camera or any uh, type of system that you're using. It's single code. You just plug it in. On the edge, we deploy on Raspberry Pi and also Zoomlink are the two places that it's compiled and deployed into. Really nice. And are there any exciting or specific case studies that you could share with us? Yeah, absolutely. If I can share you my screen, this is basically why Why does anyone care about this? It's from Forbes. Uh, there's a 2019, we'll see a 3x upgrade in AI deployment. And from anywhere from McKinsey to the Wall Street Journal, everyone's talking about AI. So imagine internet in 1995 when people were just like trying to figure it out. It's pretty much what we're doing right now in terms of uh, AI. So here you would see, okay, who's in this image? Did the batter hit the ball? How many sheep are in this herd? Should we give access? These are some of the use cases that were that's deployed right now with Chooch, and it's moving forward as well. So it's very flexible. Services are in the cloud. We call these perception libraries, and uh, these libraries uh, are a dynamic hierarchy of different models that we've trained and we've deployed. There's a machine learning process, obviously. So it learns through images, labeled images and annotated images. It goes into a folder and then it goes into a uh, reception library and that library is trained. And then whenever there's input on that, it, it starts tagging the way that you've trained it to tag. Uh, same way, it's metadata generation. So you've got the API and you sent that to Chooch and the the Chooch API sends back metadata. So it's very simple. It's just an input and output type of uh, system over here. So just basic use case, complex counting, right? Like there are 24 sheeps, there are 24 sheep here, 89 cells, very basic use case, but it's it, these are very crucial for people who are in these industries and it's not being yeah. done. To, it's all a manual process. Media enrichment, it's the same thing. Like what's going on? Who's this person? What type of style is it? Got bikes coming in or like any type of asset. Okay, what's happening there? What type of bike it is? How do we essay it? How do we make it? How do we understand what we're looking at so that we can price it at the same time? Live in this detection is the same way. We use this for uh, facial authentication. Here it's uh, identifying the person and making sure they're not trying to spoof the system. So it's not just recognition, it's also authenticating the person, whether that person is there or not, is really live or not. This is something we're doing with the US government, uh, synthetic aperture radar for satellite imagery. These are synthetic aperture radar imagery from, from satellites and drone and drones. And we identify the assets at 99 plus percent accuracy from the satellite imagery. We do change detection. So what is happening here? This is an infrared image from the satellite and what you have before and after change detection. And over here as well, this is in manufacturing. You see the scratches over here. Again, just logging actions, mm. uh, mm -hmm. sports, hospitals, you know, <laughs> kitchens. Uh, it's being used today. The hat, did the batter hit the ball? What number is he wearing? Does everyone have their mask on in a hospital? Are the gloves on? Is anesthesia administered? How many times the doors open and so forth? So you've got it in different areas from industriality, autonomous robotics, because robots also need to be able to see pedestrian detection, uh, facial authorizations. So the use cases are very, very wide and, and broad.
This is some uh, productivity. So this is a formula. Basically, what you're doing is you're taking the human and you're replacing it with a machine. And so you can't really compare the two. It's one takes, in this case, uh, it takes nine hours and uh, enormous amounts of money. And here you have a machine that does it in one second. So the productivity boom is going to explode when these become more mainstream uh, tools for everybody. And that is it. That is awesome. And you may not be able to, and if you don't, that's totally fine. Do you have a particular client case study that you could walk us through on an end-to-end manner? And if not, that's totally fine. Obviously, a lot of this is very confidential. Yeah, so one of the things, um, just go back to this case. These are all actual clients, by the way. So here you have, um, this is one of our clients, and uh, what they do is they take imagery at events. They have photographers and videographers at events, like the Emmys, Grammys, Oscars, and so forth. What they do is they run everything through our API to understand what's happening in that image. It's a very basic use case. It happens live. So be like, well, isn't that being done today? No, it's all manual. So instead of doing that manually, uh, they run it through the AI. So what you see on the left is that. And on the right is another client that is a reseller of bikes. So you walk into a shop with your old bike and you want to sell your old bike and buy a new one. This is the company that buys your old bike. But in order to buy your old bike, it needs to know what type of bike it is, right? Or what are the attributes of that bike? And so you ask the seller to give you the information, but obviously you need someone with an expert eye, a bike expert to be able to validate that. So through our system, we we trained Chooch to be an expert in bikes and Mm -hmm. run it through the system. And then Chooch tells them what the attributes are. And then based on the attributes, it's priced. So it's like an expert looking at a certain object or a certain asset. So all of these are current clients. Yeah, this is also a current client for authentication. So let's say you have uh, contractors on the field and they're abroad and you have a fraud problem because people that you've assigned something to are not the people logging in (laughs) and doing work. So you have... A camera pinging them constantly, make sure it's them in front of the computer and not someone else, basically. That's fantastic. And how is your platform and your technology different to what some of the large tech companies have been doing in this space? Obviously, they've had a lot of focus in this area as well. What would you say are some of the main differences between Church and, say, Microsoft and Google's approaches? Yeah, it's a great question. So basically, what we've done is we've made it very easy to use and deploy. You're able to do uh, a lot of different trainings at the same time. So if you're using, let's say, Google Vision or Amazon Recognition, it's very, very difficult to train unless you're a very good programmer and an AI guy who can put these things together. We have a dashboard, which is plug and play. It's very easy to use and it's highly detailed um, compared to some of our competitors. And the thing about this is it needs to be useful, right? So we had to go into a lot of detail regarding the training of the AI, which took a long time to do. And then once we did that, it it became very apparent that these things are actually very useful if you're able to deploy them and train them very, very quickly. So just fast training, fast deployment easy to use. Yes. And would you say that more of your competitive advantage sits on the data, on the label data, or on the algorithms? 
It's a mix of a lot of different things. So what we do is we automate the uh, labeling process. That has been a key thing to scale because if you have humans mm. labeling things constantly, that's not going to work out. I mean, it's not mm. scalable. And that's one of the bottlenecks today in labeling. And then the second thing is uh, the algorithms. So if you're familiar with the frameworks like TensorFlow or Gloon or MXNet, PyTorch, these are the different frameworks that are being used today in visual AI and in AI in general, so any type of AI. And then you have the different type of neural networks. So you have the ResNets of this world, you've got CNNs, RCNNs, and uh, many, many different types of neural networks that need to be combined to be able to use in that perspective. So one of the issues that we ran into was any type of new algorithm or paper published works slightly differently on different frameworks and with different neural nets. So to be able to optimize that, what we did was we combined, so we're using all those different frameworks within our platform, but the client doesn't see that. Based on the data coming in, the platform automatically chooses which one to deploy and which ones to use. In that case, it's very robust. So if it's in text, it goes to PyTorch. If you're doing facial recognition, it goes to TensorFlow. If you're doing, uh, for example, image recognition, it goes directly to Loon and so forth, depending on the size of the data and the type of data that you're putting in. And then it automatically selects the networks as well when training. And then once it's trained and deployed, it becomes part of the same corpus. So you need to be able to combine them and use them in the most effective way possible. So we didn't like force like TensorFlow only. Sometimes, you know, like some things, PyTorch is good at a lot of things and TensorFlow is good at some other things. So we kind of combined all those into one platform. That is fantastic. The automation around the labeling of the data and then the choosing and optimizing of the algorithms and obviously technologies underneath. That's a really powerful combination. When you're doing the labeling of the data, do you have methods to choose to prioritize the types of images to pick? So essentially methods to say, if we were labeling this 20% of our data set, we would get the most bang for buck from our predictive power going forward from this 20% as opposed to labeling, say, the whole corpus that you might have to use for training. So we're able to do, um, let me show you my screen again. So here, uh, when you sign up to choose, you're going to land here and this will be empty, but because you don't have anything in it. But yeah. here, uh, what happens is, um, let's go. So you have the pre-trained perceptions over here. Uh -huh. So all these are pre-trained flags, logos, whatever. So if you, let's say, go into, uh, let's look at something here, which is interesting. So this is a, that's a perception. And inside the perception, you have the different classes here. And so it's trained to recognize these. And this is done by web crawling and it does it automatically. You can create your perceptions yourself internally. So these are the public ones. But let's say you yep. want to do, you want to train yourself, right? So you're training facial. Mm -hmm. yep. Let's go facial, for example. It'll ask you to create a perception. So you create a perception, you name it. And this is like your organization or department or a group of people, anything that you want to have uh, in there. Let's go into Chooch Management here. So let's say um, what you basically do is just add an image of the person. So you don't need to label anything. You just add, it's, okay, this is Drew. You create the person and then you add it here, basically. You just keep adding images yeah. of that person. Yeah. With one image, uh, here we, we want at least five. It will work with one. 
it'll work with one, but five is like optimal. So getting mm-hmm. back to the question about like what, so it will give you these errors here. So we want four more photos are recommended. You do the same thing with image here, image. So this is image recognition. It's different from, so you create a perception and you create the class. And here it's the same thing. You just upload images here. And here we don't have a limit. You can do one image. It's not going to work that well, but a minimum of 30 images is really um, what we're looking at here. And it'll start working pretty well with 30 images. And then you have object over here, which is slightly different because you need to create a data set first. So when you create the data set here, let's say t-shirts, we want 30 images of that particular mm. annotation. So mm. here you annotate. So you're, you're annotating these and you know what this is. So, but you can also annotate the head of the guy or like mm-hmm. you know, whatever and call it something because you can use this in different environments as well. This training, quite intuitive, as you can see. Things you have the API, this is your API key and API documentation. If you go mm-hmm. to the documentation page, you'll see here, it's just one line of code and you're Great. in this. That's basically how the system works. We do have internally, we have a different system which does go into detail about um, the accuracies and also the false positives and all that kind of stuff. But we mm-hmm. don't show that to the client because it's not a data science class. Yeah, and I think that's important to make it accessible for people to understand and see the power without overcomplicating it or yeah. going too much into the minute details. I completely I agree. That's really good. And besides those, are there any other components to the platform that are not visible to a user? Any others that, that might be worth mentioning? Yeah. So when you train something, when you train a model, you get an accuracy level for that model, for that specific model, mm-hmm. uh, what we call perceptions. But one of the problems has been like, where's the cutoff for each of the classes? So what's going to be the threshold? So as humans, when we look at something, we make a decision about whether this thing is a computer or not a computer. We don't say it's 80% a computer, but current models work in a way where they say, oh, it's 92% a cup or 72% a computer. And like, how are we supposed to determine whether that is or that is not? So what's binary? What we've done is we've created class-specific thresholds based on the data coming in because no data is perfect. If the data is not perfect, then we have a problem with biases. But we have to understand that bias is natural. It's a natural state. Like we all have biases. You can't expect the AI not to have biases. But how do you control for those biases? So our control mechanism is very unique in that sense. We create a threshold per class. And if it's above that threshold, we say it's a one, it's a hit. If it's below that threshold, we say it's a zero. It's not a hit. And it controls itself in terms of the biases. So this is a really crucial part of AI that we've been trying to tackle for the past few years. Good, Great question, though. And then is that threshold different in different classes? And is that variable over time or does it get set by hand in a hard-coded manner? It's automatic. The system automatically does that based Uh on the information coming in. So once something is trained, it hard codes that inside of the class automatically. But if that class or that model is retrained, it creates all those thresholds again. Every time it's trained, and sometimes you have models that are trained on a daily basis. Uh, Sometimes you have models that you don't need to train for a year because nothing changes, right? So every time it's trained, it hard codes the threshold inside. It embeds the threshold inside of that class. It's almost counterintuitive because the more information you have about something, 
the more sure you are about it. But that's not always the case. <laughs> Your threshold for binary hit is actually much higher because you're so swamped with that information and you're biased towards that information. Your threshold is actually much, much higher than something that you would have with less information. So it's almost, it's a counterintuitive way of dealing with this problem. That's fantastic, though. My personal view, I think, in a way that mimics a little bit of how people work, in exactly. the sense that the more you know about something, then the more information you need in order to be confident about something or learn something new or yeah. be able to make a decision. But if you know very little about something, then almost any information is good information. Exactly. So like the more you know about something, the more critical you are actually about any input coming in because your threshold is very high for a hit. But the less you know about something, it's easier to make those decisions. And in that case, like your decisions are a lot of it are, is not correct, but you have to make that decision somehow. So if it's not life threatening, like what is she wearing or what does that person look like? It's not that important. But if it's like medical stuff, then you need to make sure that you have all the valid data there to make those predictions and not just be street smart about it. Correct. Yeah. Over the past four years with Tooch, what has surprised you the most about the journey? What's been something that was unexpected for you coming in and that, that you found interesting or surprising during this period? Yeah, so we moved the company to Silicon Valley uh, when we started it. We weren't expecting that much. You know, we're outsiders. We come from a different country, immigrants to the U.S. And so we weren't expecting that much support. We found a lot of support here. That was incredible. Obviously, we got a lot of rejections too, but that's part of this process, right, is to be rejected and to be rejected at like 90 to 99% level. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Quite normal. We also found people who shared the same vision, who understood what we were doing and who wanted to support the process. So, and I don't think you get that in everywhere in the world. I think it's more conservative and it's more like, well, isn't such and such a company doing this? Like, who are you to do it? And then, you know, you, you're reminded every time about things that have developed over time, like messaging and like video conferencing and things that you thought were solved, but you have new companies coming up and actually taking over and being $20 billion companies, IPOs on the same thing that you thought was solved at least 20 years ago, like messaging. Correct. <laughs> video conference. So there is no limit to this. Like ever since we even like invented the wheel, right? The wheel was invented like, you know, thousands of years ago. It's always improving. That's been like an eye opener for us as founders and as people in this business that, you know, don't take anything for granted that there's always a way to improve what's happening. And this AI stuff is still very early be honest. We'll see a growth in this, but this will continue for the next 50 years. Like mm. We will see growth in this area for the next 50 years and have better products coming out, have better implementations, and you have companies that will be uh, trillion-dollar companies coming out of this. I mean, people who solve this AI problem will be 10 times bigger than Microsoft. And it won't be one company. It will be many, but... No. Hard to conceptualize today. We have a present day bias and we think the present is like hard coded into what we're doing. But then tomorrow something else happens and all of our ideas change. So I think Silicon Valley has given us that understanding more than I think we would have had if we if we didn't move the company here. So that's been kind of surprising. We're not young entrepreneurs. We're in, we're in our 40s, mid-40s, and you're always learning something new. And you're learning something new from younger entrepreneurs, from younger people, from older ones, people who've been through this. And so that has been interesting for us. 
That is fantastic. I love that perspective that everything can be improved and is being improved. And so really glad to hear that you have been welcomed into Silicon Valley and got some support, understanding that the majority of the discussions are going to end up in in rejection. That is, as you said, definitely expected. But the fact that there is support and people to help and share their journey and their learnings, that's fantastic. That's really great to hear. Really happy for you guys. How early in the company did you decide to move to Silicon Valley? Almost immediately. So um, we have one of our advisors. He's uh, he's a great guy. He's an American who lives in France. And he was like, and a couple of other people, to be honest, uh, they were like, if you're going to do this seriously, you got to go there and like, got to go. I don't think it's 100% necessary for everyone to do this. But um, if you're in this industry and you have the capability to move your company to this area for the start, I think it's a good idea to try at least. You meet a lot of people who are on the same journey, who go through the same hardships and successes and failures, and uh, people who can really relate to what you're doing here more than I think anywhere else in the world right now. Yeah, definitely. And what are some of the challenges or the problems that are occupying your mind and your time at the moment? What are the things that you're wrestling with and working through right now? Yeah, so we're uh, growing the team. Humans are probably the most complicated species on Earth. So, uh, you know, it's either the team that you build makes the company or it breaks the company. This is reality. It doesn't matter, like, how good your technology is or how good, you know, your clients are. Really, it's about the core team and that culture that you develop. So my focus has been uh, team building in the past um, for this year specifically, and making sure that we have the right people who are joining this crazy journey together and <laughs> who are passionate and who, who are obsessed and who are, but are also very good team players. And so that's kind of been my, it keeps me up at night. That's probably the only thing at this stage. And there are many things going on, but I think the team and building that team and building that culture and making sure that uh, people are working on together in, in harmony and mm. efficient is really what I've been focused on recently. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's something so important and it needs so much dedication and such a big time commitment and so much care in order to create a really strong, vibrant culture that is uh, high performing. That's fantastic that you're spending your time and energy there. And I'm sure that the team is very appreciative that you're focusing and the company will do well for it. <laughs> no, definitely, definitely. Emrat, this has been so interesting. So, so interesting and fantastic. I only have one last question for you. And I wanted to ask you for a piece of advice that you would like to leave the listeners with and possibly people that want to follow your footsteps in the sense of starting an AI company. What would you say to people that are toying with the idea, people that would have aspirations to do that, or people that are early in their journey with an AI company? What are some pieces of advice that you would like to share with people in that part of their their journey? Yeah, it's a difficult path. I would say that. And based on that, it's also very rewarding at the same time if you can hit your milestones. So anyone who's involved in AI today and wants to get involved in AI needs to really understand the applications of what they want to do. And also, if they're not a technical co-founder, they should have a technical co-founder who's a master in AI. That's, I think, very key. I think a lot of people get involved in this and then um, they have difficulties on the technical side and they can't deliver the products. 
And that's understandable because this is very early in this space. So uh, we won't have this problem in maybe five, 10 years. It'll be more mainstream and you know people will be programming AI like they're programming, let's say, a website. It'll be more down. But here, if they want to get involved at this stage, they better make sure that their co-founder either themselves is a hacker or their co-founder is a hacker, a real AI hacker. <laughs> I think that's the first thing I would say, or else you're, you, you'll set yourself up for failure. Even if you have the clients, you won't be able to deliver the product that they want. And you don't want to do that. The second thing is be very patient. You're going to get rejections all over the place. But remember, this is an industry that's uh, growing at like 20 to 40% per year. And uh, remember Jeff Bezos, uh, when he said, why did you set up Amazon? He was like, well, I set up Amazon because there was the internet that was growing at a thousand percent a year. So you need to ride that wave. Sometimes takes time. Imagine setting up a website in 1995. So it's very early, like nothing is really happening. So I would say be patient. You're going to get rejections. People are not going to believe you. But if you have the vision and if you have the capability and talent, just keep going if you can. Those are my you know, two cents for a young entrepreneur who wants to get into AI, basically. Man, that is fantastic, fantastic advice and an excellent note to end on. Emra, thank you so much for your time, for sharing your journey, your insights, your lessons. The work that you're doing is fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you, Felipe. Really enjoyed uh, speaking with you and thanks for uh, having me today. Uh, thank you. That was absolutely brilliant. I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommend it for people wanting to get ahead. With the program, you can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu. I wanted to tell you about We Are Rubik's, one of Australia's leading pure data consulting companies delivering project outcomes for some of the world's leading brands. Growing rapidly and with offices in Melbourne, Sydney and the US, Rubik's are as serious about analytics as they are about their pinball. True story, they have like 10 pinball machines in their Melbourne head office. If you're interested in joining a passionate and vibrant team who make work fun, head to wearerubix.com and get in touch today. That's wearerubix, all one word, wearerubix.com and get in touch today. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.